Hello, church family. Great to be with you today as we uh, dive back into the book of James. As uh, Dustin read, we are in James chapter 1, verse 26, through chapter 2, verse 13. And I, I've, enti- I've titled the sermon this morning, Impartial Love and Mercy. I grew up understanding and being keenly aware of God's wrath and judgment towards me, but I never quite understood His love and mercy. I always knew that I would be punished for my wrongs, but never fully understood how to get out from underneath that crushing weight. Praise be to God, He opened my eyes to the beauty of the gospel. It was by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that I was set free from the power and penalty of sin. And then after putting my faith and trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of my sins, I struggled to fully understand the impartiality of His grace and mercy. Has He fully forgiven me for all of my past sins? Will He forgive me for sins that I have yet to commit? Does He continue to forgive me for the mistakes that I'll make in the future? Is there still some wrath and punishment left for me to drink? Well, good news for me and good news for those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus, that Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath. He drank it dry and there's not a drop left for me. And the more that I understand the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ and the reality of His unlimited grace and His mercies that are new every day, Guess what? The less I want to sin and the more I want to serve others as I have been served. I'm reminded today in this passage that we're encountered with that God's mercy and His grace are impartial. He saves anyone who genuinely believes that He died for their sins and rose again from the dead. He didn't save me because I was a good person, because God knows I wasn't. He didn't save me because I was an American or middle class. He didn't save me because I belonged to a particular denomination or a particular church. He didn't even save me because I was a UNC graduate. He saved you and I for the same reason and by the same grace that He saved every one of His children. He's impartial. He shows no favoritism. He saves model citizens, and he saves hardened criminals. He saves dirty poor and filthy rich. He saves adulterers, and he saves those who have been faithfully married. He saves Americans, and he saves Palestinians. He saves legal immigrants. And he saves illegal immigrants. He saves Republicans, and he saves Democrats. He doesn't save because of who you were or what you've done. He saves out of his mercy, by his grace, nothing that we've done. As his children, whom he has impartially and mercifully saved by his grace, we are called to impartially, impartially love others and to extend the mercy of God to them. Here's the kicker. Even those who offer nothing in return, 
And that's really the crux of this sermon. Do you understand God's impartial mercy? Are you characterized, not by other people, but in your own heart, are you one who shows impartial love and mercy to others? Do you find yourself serving and befriending and spending time only with those whom you can derive some benefit from? Today's passage has something for each of us, as God's Word always does. It's living, it's active, it's abiding. It's, it's going to accomplish what God sent out for it to accomplish. So I pray that that would happen for us here this morning. James is writing to Christians who are experiencing trials of various kinds. And trials of various kinds are common to all of humanity. Christians aren't exempt from them. And trials aren't just for Christians. But it's important to remember that he is writing to those who have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of Jesus. He's writing to Christians. And inside this kingdom, inside of God's family, we're secure. Never to be banished. And so far in this short book, he's exhorted us to allow trials to deepen our faith, to purify our hope, and to expose our fleshly desires that when conceived can give birth to sin. Last week we learned that our fleshly desires, when left unchecked, can lead to too much talking, not enough listening which is a recipe for unrighteous anger. I'd encourage you to listen to the message if you have not already. And this is all true in our human relationships. But his primary exhortation last week was to be quick to listen to God's word first before all, all, before all other channels are tuned in and to then do what his word tells us to do. He instructs us to hear the word to receive the word, to be doers of the word. And he said it's in doing the word, if you will, that there's blessing or there's happiness. So we're going to start today in verse 26. We'll end in chapter 2, verse 13. And James, as you already know, and we'll learn more about, claims that true faith, a pure and undefiled faith is a faith that works. Not earns, but works. It's a faith motivated by the love of God that hears the word, that receives the word, and does the word. Conversely, someone who calls himself a Christian but is not a doer of the word, they're merely a hearer, James says, deceives himself. And so James continues in this vein in verse 26. He says, if anyone thinks or supposes or views that he is religious or is a worshiping person and he does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. 
If anyone thinks that his faith is based upon uh, religious expressions alone or church attendance or any kind of um, good religious performance but does not bridle or hold his tongue, he is deceived, James says, and his religion, his faith is worthless or it's, or it's in vain. James is concerned with pure and genuine faith that works. Singing, praying, taking notes in a sermon, which I hope you're doing right now, are all good. But are you, but are you holding your tongue? Are you quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger? There is a religion, James says, that is pure. Uh, and it is undefiled. It's active. It's rich. It's the real thing. It does what it says it's going to do. And it stays away from what's forbidden. As a family, Nancy and I and our kids, we were a uh, log cabin syrup kind of family. Is there anybody out there that likes log cabin syrup? Well, we enjoyed it for years on our French toast, our pancakes, our waffles. And then one day, somebody turned this on. I don't even know who it was. If I knew, I'd give them a thank you note or maybe even a kiss on the cheek. Turned this on to pure maple syrup. And when we tasted the real thing, and then when we saw that the, the fake was nothing but um, corn syrup, that would actually cause our, is causing our bodies to be defiled. <laughs> we, we never turned back. It was a real deal. James wants you and I to live out pure and undefiled faith. And he's saying there's a difference between pure and unpure faith. He knows that it's in doing what you hear motivated by God's love and mercy that we will find ultimate blessing. So James will give us a picture here today of what mercy-motivated, pure, and undefiled faith looks like in action. He doesn't want us to hear. He wants us to do it. Verse 27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep one unstained from the world. These are important examples of spirit-produced actions that please God. Pure and undefiled religion that we are saved to is this, to visit orphans, the fatherless. To visit doesn't mean to just send a text or make a phone call or um, drop a meal on the front porch. I guess it it might in this pandemic that we're in. But visit, the the word visit uh, means to care for, to make time for, to prioritize. So pure and undefiled religion um, is one that visits orphans or the fatherless, cares for them, makes time for them, prioritizes them, also visits widows, those who have lost a spouse, that were to care for them and make time for them and prioritize them. And get this, he is writing to Christians 
that are experiencing trials of various kinds. So he's writing to people like you and I that are afflicted in some way. We're not sure exactly what it is back then, but you know your afflictions. You know your trials. And here's what he says, that you Christians that, that strive for a pure and undefiled um, uh, religion before God the Father, he says, visit orphans and widows in their affliction. You see, there's, there's something to learn there because when I'm in my affliction, I'm in my uh, trial of various kinds, um, I don't tend to notice other people. So he's saying that these widows and orphans, the fatherless and the ones who have lost a spouse, are in perpetual affliction. Look up and visit them, care for them, prioritize them. Isaiah 1.17 said something similar. He says, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, and plead the widow's cause. So that's widows and orphans, but then at the end of verse 27, he says, and keep oneself unstained from the world. What might that mean? There's probably several different meanings, but the world we know represents everything that's opposed to God. Typically when the world is used um, by James or John in 1 John, it represents everything opposed to God. In this case, I think James is narrowing in on the gospel of man. That being unstained by the world, or being, let me say it another way, by being stained by the world is embracing the gospel of man. That everything is about me, our three best friends, me, myself, and I. It's building my kingdom. Maybe doing good things, but only when it benefits me, myself, and I and our kingdom. Isaiah said this in, in, in chapter 1, verse 23. He says, you're princes, you're rebels, and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come to them. The princes referred to here don't bring justice to the fatherless and the widows because there's nothing for the prince to gain by visiting widows and orphans. This is the stain of the world. In our fleshly humanness, we're all prone to this. I'm not exempt. You're not exempt. We're prone to selfish, uh, self, selfishness and serving others on our own terms and serving others when there's some type of benefit for us. You know, when I was in the financial services business, I was a, when I was a stockbroker, financial consultant, whatever you want to call me, um, that I was, um, I kind of worked myself into certain circles. The circles of professional athletes, the circles of, of attorneys, the circles of politicians. And I participated in all of their events. Fundraisers for the Opera Colorado, I was on Don Bain's uh, political committee, Terry Considine's political committee. I was on the board of the Colorado Coalition for the Homeless. Um, I served at the Samaritan's place, or Samaritan's house is what it's called. But when I look back on that, I mean, it looked selfless. And, and if I was um, totally honest with myself, I, I did, and I've always had a heart for the least of these. 
But the reason that I did all of those uh, philanthropic, however you say it, those, those, um, those uh, endeavors to raise money and to help the, uh, was, to, was to gain stature with my clients. It was for me. And that's what James is talking about here. James is constantly in this book, get used to it, over 50 times he tells us what to do. If you don't like being bossed around, you're probably not going to like the book of James. But I want to tell you this, it's God's word. And that everything James tells us to do, all the imperatives are to be motivated by gospel indicatives. Indicatives are truths about who God is and what he accomplished and how he thinks of you and I. We, me, you, if you put your faith and trust in Jesus, that you are a Christian saved by grace through faith. And as a result of God's mercy and grace, you are fully loved and accepted. We don't obey, I said this last week, we don't obey God's commands in order to be loved or accepted. We obey his, in, his imperatives, His commands, because we are already fully accepted and loved. And as the Father's beloved children, you are to love as He has loved you. You are to extend mercy to others, even if you get nothing in return, as He has extended mercy to you. James 2, verse 1, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the, the Lord of glory. This pure and undefiled faith does not discriminate. This literally means um, it does not receive a face. When, when he says that it, that it shows no partiality, it does not receive a face. It does not make a judgment whether somebody is worthy uh, to be served or loved or uh, to, ex to receive your mercy um, by their outward appearance or by their stature or by their color or, or, or nationality. This rich faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ doesn't favor race, ethnicity, or background. This faith that we hold loves, um, loves and serves others with no partiality, giving uh, no consideration to outward appearance or status. This type of faith should never ask, what am I going to get in return? Do not hold your faith, James says, with this attitude of favoritism. Faith and favoritism are incompatible in God's kingdom. Favoritism is shown, favoritism is visiting and serving only those whom you can benefit from. Those who can repay you. Or maybe those who um, appreciate you. What about serving those that not only don't appreciate you, but actually might do you some harm. That Jesus came to serve and not be served. And the very people that he came to serve crucified him. James is the ever consummate storyteller 
an illustrator. And in the following verses, 2 through 4, he gives us an example of what showing partiality and favoring others based on their outward appearance status uh, and status um, looks like. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing comes in also, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? There's nothing hidden here. It's a pretty clear illustration. He gives us a tangible example of discrimination based on outward appearance and or status. Remember, he's writing to Christians, not because only a few of us wrestle with this, but because we all do, if we're honest. So I encourage you to allow the mirror of God's Word to expose what it desires into you today. Two people walk into this gathering. The gathering's not important. The place is not the point. The point James is hammering home is the injustice of how one is treated differently from the other based on their outward appearance. One is rich and cultured. The other is poor and dirty. One is esteemed. The other is treated like a slave. And it's all based on appearance. James puts you and I in the story, and he says, if you pay attention to the rich man, literally to look upon him with a feeling of admiration and respect. How many of us have sucked up to politicians, to professional athletes, to actors in a different way than we interact with those with no stature, with no um, outward appearance or accomplishments that um, attract us to them. You offer the rich man the best seat, maybe even your seat. You ever done that at home? I have. It's not best. It's actually good hospitality. You get up and let them take the most comfy seat. But when two people walk in, and the one with the gold ring, you know, the, the manicured nails, the hair, the thick wallet, you give them your seat, while in the same breath, you say to the dirty poor man, sit at my feet. That's a picture and a posture of a slave. He asks, have you not made distinctions based on your outward appearance? It's rhetorical. Are you judging these men with evil hearts? And judging here means to weigh or examine the value of somebody by their outward appearance or status. I'm guilty of this. It's one of the reasons why at WCC, the pastors don't know who gives what. And yes, it's like, it's like shepherding with one hand behind our back, but it's worth it. Because I know the evil intentions of my heart. 
I did it in the brokerage business. Yes, I wanted to help people in the most desperate way. But I found that when I knew somebody had money, that they had the ability to benefit me in some way, I would find myself sucking up to them at the expense of others. Let's be honest. The dirty poor man is an interruption that can bring you and I no tangible benefit. In fact, the the poor person might even cost us money and time and hassle. While the rich man, he can benefit you. He might be able to help you get your kid into the right college or give more money to your church or your ministry. He might be able to invest in your business idea. Maybe it's just simply to be able to brag that you rubbed shoulders with this particular rich person. Nancy and I, a long time ago, read a book called In His Steps. It's a good book, but like all books written by men, men there's, there's bones in it. Um, so when you read, you take the meat, you spit out the bones. It's written by Charles Shelton, or Sheldon, I think is his name. It's a great book. It's about a, it's about a homeless man that walked into a church. And the church, he didn't look like anybody in the church. And he had nothing for that church, presumably. And the church turned him away. In fact, even some congregants called him a bum, lazy. When the reality was is that he, he had really lost his job. And he was really sick. We ended up watching the movie the other day instead of rereading the book. And we're just, um, just struck um, by the call to love our neighbor, no matter who our neighbor is. God chose to love you and I when we were dead in our sins and trespasses, when we were spiritually bankrupt. God showed no partiality or favoritism in extending His grace to you and I. He hasn't chosen the rich and the poor. He has chosen the rich and the poor alike to be rich in faith, to be co-heirs with Christ. Class or race doesn't matter in God's kingdom. His promise is for all who love Him. Next, James wants us to pay careful attention and then ask us a rhetorical question. He says in verse 5, Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which He has promised to those who love Him? He isn't saying that God has only chosen the poor, but that He has in fact chosen the poor. This is not a comparison between um, poor and rich. That's not the point here. The point is is that God is impartial in in saving His creation. God chooses the poor as well as the rich to be heirs in the kingdom. In Christ, there is no distinction between Jew and Gentile, between poor and rich, between black and white. His salvation is impartial. It's for every tribe, tongue, and nation. Remember the story of Cornelius in Acts chapter 10? He was a God-fearer. He was a Gentile that converted to Judaism. 
And Peter is in, um, in a different town and had a dream. And God told him that all these things that he was forbidden to eat are now clean. At the same time, Cornelius, who never met Peter, was in a different town. And he was told by the angel of God to invite Peter to come and visit him. And Peter didn't know what it was all about. But long story short, what it was about is that God shows no partiality. You see, even the original 12 weren't quite sure who salvation was for. They were all Jews. And on Pentecost, it it was people that were there in Jerusalem for the Passover. They were Jewish people who were first saved. And when Peter went and visited Cornelius and saw that God had saved Cornelius, he said to the people in the house, he said, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew like me to associate or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. Then in verse 34, it says this, So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, and neither should we. So, now, so James now draws out his point further by showing us how this type of partiality dishonors the poor man and and does um, no ultimate good to us by sucking up to the rich man. Verse 6 and 7. But you have dishonored the poor man by telling him to sit at your feet. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? He's basically saying, what are you doing? You are dishonoring the poor man, the, this man who is made in God's image, and you're treating him like a slave. At the same time, you're pandering to those who may treat you in the same way that you're treating the poor man. Whenever the rich man's um, use for you is done or complete, you might become a, a nuisance to him or a liability to him. And he may start treating you poorly. He may even take you to court to get whatever it is that he wants from you that he can't get from you. And then James brings more heat. He tells us that not only are we showing favoritism to the rich man, but we are showing this favoritism to someone with a reputation for taking people to court. And on top of that, he says that we're sucking up to someone who slanders the name of Jesus Christ, whose name you bear. He's not painting all rich people with with the same brush. And I don't know exactly what was happening in that culture, but he's just telling us how ridiculous it is that we would would show partiality. Look into the face of a poor man to see his dirty clothes and have him sit at our feet as a slave while looking into the face of a rich man and thinking, oh, wow, what can I benefit from him and giving him my best chair. And this truly was me. It was me at many levels. I was happy to align with the rich and famous and anyone else who could help me accomplish my goals and my dreams and my aspirations. I've repented from that, and God in His kindness has forgiven me. But I'm not 
I'm still prone to it. And so are you. James is showing you and I that our, he's showing our partiality in loving and serving others. And his ultimate goal for you and I is to love others as we love ourselves. And James calls this the royal law, the law of the king. Verse 8, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. Who's your neighbor? It could be people next door. It could be people in your community group who look like you and enjoy some of the same things that you do. And that's all good and well to hang out and make friends with people that are like us. But what about our neighbors? Those at WCC even, who aren't like you. What about the person begging on the corner? What about the Muslim refugee in Greeley? What about the person that you keep avoiding because their struggles never seem to end? Paul told us in Galatians 5.14 that one word or one commandment fulfilled the entire Old Testament law. He says, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said that only two laws matter because all others, all the other laws are held in balance by these two. Jesus in Matthew 22 responded to a Pharisee who was a lawyer and tried to test him. He responded to him this way. Well, actually, here's the question the teacher asked or the, the, the lawyer asked. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. James says that if you love your neighbor, you're doing well. But if you are loving your neighbor, serving, hanging out with him, because of what he can give you, the royal law, James says, condemns you. If you love some and not others, you're guilty of breaking the law. He continues in 9 through 11, but if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, get this, he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. What he's saying is this, if you receive a face, if you look into the eyes of someone and then make a conscious decision to show partiality because of that face, it's sin. Looking to the outward appearance and status of two parties and then showing favoritism to one and dismiss or not visit the other is criminal according to God's law. This type of discrimination is just as much of an offense to the royal law as killing 
someone or committing adultery. That blows me away. See, there's no sin that's greater than another. There might be some sins that have greater, like, earthly consequences. In each of these cases, you fail to love others as yourself. In Romans 13, 8 through 10, Paul says, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. So James now wraps up this section with an imperative and an important indicative that needs to be laid over this entire section of Scripture. So speak and so act as those who are being judged under the law of liberty. God's gracious acceptance of you and I does not end our obligation to obey Him. It sets it on new footing. That's a quote from Douglas Moo. You will stand before the judgment seat of Christ, and if your sin by faith has been mercifully covered by the blood of Jesus Christ, you will be judged innocent and invited to the wedding feast. He's saying speak and act in accordance to who you already are. The only way to make a human being love others without partiality is for them to be gripped with the reality that God showed no partiality to them. And if God had been partial towards us, you and I would still be dead in our sins and trespasses. And you might be thinking, well, this is an impossible task. How can I speak and act well enough to be okay before God? I could never do that. I know my heart. Well, sometimes I know my heart. God knows it better. But I know my biases. I know my tendencies. What if I blow it? This is the place where you recognize that you could never do enough to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And so you subsequently realize that you, you are in need of Christ's mercy every day. And His mercies are new every day. And that leads to our last reminder from James on this point. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. The message of the gospel is that we all need mercy. And James is reminding us that if you know Jesus Christ, you have received mercy. And that his mercies are new every day. And that mercy triumphs over judgment. Praise be to God that he brings justice and mercy together at the cross. And you and I have been declared righteous before God based on the righteousness of Jesus Christ. James is saying that when you have experienced that kind of impartial mercy, you clearly know how to show impartial mercy to others. I want to encourage us as we close off. I want to encourage you. It's an encouragement to myself to 
pick up the Bible. Open it up. Let it be a mirror to your heart. Be reminded in it and through it of God's impartial love and mercy towards you. Be reminded that when you were dead in your sins and trespasses, He made you alive in Christ Jesus. When you were poor, He made you rich. Be reminded of not only what you were saved from, but what you were saved to. We were saved from the power and the shame and the penalty of our sin. We were saved into a kingdom, into a family. And in the same way that he's extended his mercy and love to us, he calls us to share and show that impartial love and mercy to others particularly when we receive nothing in return. If I could just say it in a shorter way, that loving and serving others is simply and profoundly an overflow or an outflow of the way that God in His mercy and kindness has served us. I pray that the Lord would use this church in increasing in greater ways to love and serve and extend mercy to all of our neighbors, but maybe in particularly those who are not like us. Let's pray. Father, I bless you. God, I thank you for this um, section of Scripture. God, I thank you that it's not about a list of rules. It's about a good and loving and merciful Savior who, um, who before the beginning of time chose us to be His sons and daughters. And I thank You that You accomplished that work. And the work that You have begun in us, the work of salvation that You've begun in us by Your mercy, You are bringing to completion. And God, we stand firm on the gospel of salvation. And Lord, I pray that you would help us build bridges by serving others and extending mercy to others, maybe who are undeserving of it. Maybe it's just people that don't look like us. And God, I pray that you would use our sacrificial serving in the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ to set captives free from the power and the penalty of sin. God, would you do that? Would you use us? Would you compel us? Would you motivate us by your mercy and love to do that? And God, we want to give you all the glory and the praise and the honor. We love you. We thank you that you loved us first. And all of God's people said, amen. Have a great weekend, beloved.